Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. All right, everybody, if you'll go ahead and grab a seat. It's good to see you all. Grab a seat. We'll go ahead and jump into the Word of God for today. It's so nice to be together. And so many unmasked faces, you know. Over this uh, last year, I don't know how many sermons I preached to a camera, but seeing faces, oh my gosh, rather than imagining your faces, but to see your faces is just the best. It's just the best. So again, I know it's so hot if you came in while we were singing a minute ago. Feel free, just try to stay as comfortable as you can. If you, if you need to get up and walk out, get some air, whatever, you know, find a piece of paper, make a fan, you know, just make yourself at home. Grab some water, whatever you got to do. So today, um, I'm here to preach to myself as much as I'm here to proclaim the gospel to anybody else. Um, week by week, this I don't know, I feel like uh, I preached my first sermon when I was 16. <laughs> Can you imagine how good that was? Um, <laughs> it was called Jesus Loves Punk Rock Kids. And I still, I still, yes, all right. And I still stand by that with all my heart. I know he does. Um, and, but here today, I, I'm just as, I need him as bad today at 41 as I did when I was 16. And if I can describe my relationship with God over the 20 years I've known him, it's just been a love affair. I wrestle with him. I struggle with him. I struggle with this book so much, it is crazy. It is crazy. And at the same time, I feel like I'm reading honestly. That is, if you read your Bible and you just go, yeah, creation, trinity, Resurrection, return of Christ, renewal of all things. And you read all these things and don't look at it kind of sideways like a dog that heard a whistle. Like, if you don't have that experience, you got to read it again because there are some crazy things being said in this book that blow our minds, that are beyond our minds, that are beyond anything we can get our mind really around. And I feel like week by week trying to comment on our God, it's, it feels nearly impossible. And... It is, but we're going to do our best. We're going to do our best with what we have. So we've been walking through this letter to the Hebrews. Unknown author, unknown audience, written in roughly 65 AD. And we, from understanding the context of the book of Hebrews, we do know that the audience is primarily being pressured to cave to culture and abandon proclaiming Jesus and following Jesus as Lord and Savior. So in replanting our church, it made good sense in a city like ours, the home base for deconstructionism, popularly coined today in Seattle. It feels right to root ourselves in God and the gospel. And what does the word of God have to say to those of us who feel a constant pressure to walk away, to abandon the faith, become syncretistic, and conform to culture? So we're walking through the letter to the Hebrews. One word, 
that summarizes the whole book is the word better. Jesus is better than Moses, better than Abraham, better than the angels, better than all the prophets, better than all the good works in the world. He's better than all of creation. Jesus is better than anything any of us have got going for us today. Jesus is better. He's even better than air conditioning, believe it or not. So, and I say that in faith. All right, so Hebrews chapter two. I'm so thankful for my sisters that already encouraged my soul this morning. Gosh, with Ashley from Matthew and Lisa leading us in our confession, pardon assurance, I, I feel I'm far more equipped to preach this morning because God used my sisters. So thank you, ladies. Um, Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 14, we covered the first half last week because I blazed through books of the Bible. All right. Hebrews 2, verse 14 says this. Since therefore the children, that's you and me, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Think Christmas. Incarnation, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus, clothed himself in flesh and blood. Jesus became, as the Nicene Creed tells us, truly human, truly human. And he partook of the same things. Here's where we pick up this week. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death, my goodness. If we've heard anything for the last year, it's a fear of death. Constantly, 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 constantly. We've been, we, you know, we, we've been face to face with it. As a society, as a world, as a whole, it's shaken us in a way that only happens about every hundred years when a pandemic rolls around. It shakes humanity to our knees, a fear of death. I read an interesting article this week out of, out of Oxford. An anthropologist was talking about people who are not afraid of death. And here's what the research concluded. There's two categories of people that are not afraid of death. One are very religious people. Two are atheists. <laughs> we know why the atheists aren't afraid of death, because we come from nothing and we're headed to nothing. There's nothing on the other side of the door of death, nothing to be afraid of, no one to give an account to. There's no body, no thing waiting on the other side of death. So live however you like, which that does put some formidable challenges for those of us today that are committed to justice. Why be about justice if there's no accountability? Do you make it up as you go? How does that work? Anyway, atheists tend to not be afraid of death. The other crowd that are not afraid of death are very religious people, but the religious people the study found fractured into two camps. There's the extrinsically religious and the intrinsically religious. Extrinsically religious people are people that are committed to uh, emotionalism and the sociological implications of practicing a religion. External religious 
practice. It's more about my friends, and it's more about how I kind of, my religion makes me feel. That's the extrinsic. Those people, the extrinsically religious, show up on their deathbeds, and they're terrified. Why? Because their religion was not about truth or conviction. But the intrinsically religious ones, the ones that built their life on true faith, belief, gut-level conviction, not emotionalism and mere sociological constructs, those people show up on their deathbed and they're okay. It reminded me of Eugene Peterson, a great hero in the faith who's now with Jesus, who translated the, the book called The Message. You've probably come across it. Eugene, when he died, his son Eric went into the hospital room and said, Dad, today's the day. You're not going to make it through today. And then Eric said, my dad stared out the window and then looked back with his charming Eugene Peterson grin and just said, well, I'm all right with that. <laughs> and then he passed away. That's how Eugene went into death. Why? Because he had an intrinsic, deep gut-level conviction that he was not playing God and playing church and playing games with a thing called the Holy Bible. And he wasn't messing with people's souls, and he didn't take his soul lightly. And so, because of his deep gut-level conviction, he showed up at his deathbed and says, I'm all right with that. How about you? How about you? We're in church today. Is this like an extrinsic, sociological, emotional-ism exercise? Or is this about intrinsic, deep, gut-level conviction and belief? Because what you need, and what our city needs right now, desperately, is people who are deeply rooted in something that is so foreign in our culture, and it's called truth. And it does exist, and it's not relative. If truth were relative, what were we rioting over last year? 22.5 years, and people are going nuts right now. Why? Because truth is not relative. God is just. Truth is real. And so, as we think about our faith, as you think about whether or not you're going to persevere and finish the race, you got to look deeply into His Word and look at reality and then respond. So, the passage says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now, commentators don't really go into this very much. They don't explain it any more than the writer of Hebrews explains it. How does the death of Jesus destroy the one who has the power of death, the devil? Does the devil control life and death? Well, not, not necessarily. God is sovereign. Not even a sparrow falls to the ground, right, without his knowledge. Life and death are in the hand of God. So, what is he saying here? Well, go back to Genesis. Remember how death got into the picture to begin with. Adam and Eve, they're deceived through the serpent, and then death, shame, sin, and all the rest enter creation. It is at that moment that Satan then capitalizes on our consequences and haunts the human race from that moment forward with the reality that we are all going to die. That's just it. So it is through Jesus' death that he puts death to death. 
And as I studied and studied and gone, man, where, where are the theologians? Where are the commentators? Where are, can anybody explain how Jesus' death overwhelms death itself? It occurred to me. The title of the book is called Hebrews. <laughs> where do we find instances where death is overwhelmed itself? Well, remember back to the Hebrew people? In Exodus chapter 1, it tells us that the Hebrew people were enslaved in Egypt, and they were put to, uh, it says, cruel and ruthless, lifelong slavery. No vacations, no off days, no possibility of ever getting out of this dreadful experience of being a slave of the pharaohs for over 400 years. But then. Their cries go up to God, and God comes to Moses, a murderer, mind you, on the run, calls to Moses from the burning bush, and gives Moses the instructions, you are going to go and lead my people out of slavery. Moses then obeys God fairly reluctantly, but does it nonetheless, goes before Pharaoh, you are to let God's people go that, he may, that they may worship him freely. And as the Pharaoh and Moses go back and forth, we have the plagues, frogs, Nile turns to blood, hail and fire from the sky, and so on, right? And then the earth goes dark, but then the tenth plague shows up, and this is the most important one. The tenth plague is the only one that comes with a condition to it for the Hebrew people. All the other plagues were falling on Egypt only, but then when it came time to liberate his own people. God required a condition to it. Do you remember it? They were to sacrifice a lamb as a substitute, paint the door frame of their home with the blood of the substitute, and then as God passes through the camp, it says, when I see, you've got it, this is your atonement theology, when I see the blood I will pass over and send the destroyer angel on his way. So now you fast forward to us who live in lifelong slavery of the fear of death, and we have a writer telling us that there was a lamb who was substituted, who sacrificed himself so that when his blood is, is seen, the wrath of God is averted so that people might go free. You see, this is why Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 5, Christ is our Passover who's been sacrificed once and for all for the forgiveness of sins. So how, what's going on here? This is, and, and the writer wants you to understand how overwhelmingly powerful Jesus is. That in Jesus' death, in his quivering naked body dying on Calvary, banished outside the city, the most shameful, weak, humiliating moment of Jesus' life is so powerful it shook hell itself. That in Jesus' weakest moment, he overwhelmed all of the devil and all of the demons and all of hell. That Jesus' weakness, the very weakest moment of the life of Jesus, destroys hell. <laughs> Imagine if he flexes. Oh, he does. It's called the resurrection. 
And in the resurrection, he brings all the children of God into the kingdom of God, giving us his righteousness, making us at peace with God, that he might become our Abba, and we might become his children. That's pretty good news for a city like ours, and it's good news for you, and it's good news for me today. So, through death, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's what Jesus did in his dying, that he emboldens us, that the day comes that if you live 80 years, that's 29,200 days, if you live all of those days and death finally shows up, you can go into the darkest moment assured of your salvation, that on the other side of the door are the arms of God, open to you, welcoming you. God is not on the other side of your death looking to strike you, judge you, scare you, or haunt you. On the other side of death, in spite of all your wrong turns, God welcomes us into His presence as you would welcome your own child today. Unbelievable. That's unbelievable. That'll get you out of bed on Monday. <laughs> All right. And deliver those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember First Peter? I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. I'll just read this verse to you. It was revealed to them, that is the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Do you know how special your salvation is? When the angels rebelled with Satan and were cast out of heaven, God did not send His own Son to redeem the angels. But when we rebelled, in the same way God sent His own Son in our image and likeness, that He might redeem us. This is why the angels are curious to know what you're experiencing as a redeemed follower of Jesus. That the thing you have in Christ actually has the attention of heaven itself. This is why Luke 15, when Jesus says, when one sinner repents, all the angels of heaven rejoice. Why? Because they don't know what it's like to be recipients of the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness of God. They just see God as just, and that's fine. Sinners get judgment. Right. But when we rebelled, they're utterly curious. Things into which they long to look is the fact that you know Jesus on a first-name basis. <laughs> wow. All right. Therefore, oh, but he helps the, the, the offspring of Abraham. Sorry. Abraham, Genesis 12, God promised to Abraham, I'm going to bless the nations through you, through your faith, and you're following after me. I'm going to bless the nations through you. This morning, if you're following Jesus, another way that we call ourselves, we're children of Abraham. That this salvation belongs to you by grace and through faith. If you're not a Christian this morning and you're wondering, how do I become a child of Abraham? You simply talk to Jesus, not Abraham. 
and you give Jesus your sin, and Jesus gives you his righteousness, and says, now you're a child of God, and a child of Abraham. All right. Therefore, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So as we mentioned last week, when Jesus' incarnation took on flesh and blood, he is just, he became like you. You need to know that Jesus doesn't love you from a distance. That Jesus doesn't observe merely as transcendent God and go, wow, I do understand what they're going through down there. Looks difficult. No. Jesus knows on a first-hand basis what it's like to be human, what it's like to deal with temptation, what it's like to deal with frustration, what it's like to deal with limitation. Jesus knows what it's like to go hungry. Jesus knows what it's like to go without a home. Jesus knows what it's like to fall on hard times. He was made like us. Jesus knows what it's like to have strained relationships. Jesus knows what it's like to have somebody hunting for you. Jesus knows. He became like us in every respect. You know who can't say that? All other world religions. Allah cannot say that. He would not say that. In fact, to say God becomes man is blasphemous in their religion. Yet, this is what's happened. He became like us. Aren't you thankful that you have a Savior that knows how to love you up close and understand you for who you really are? But why did he do that? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Listen to those words. If you can't think of anything else this week to meditate on, merciful and faithful. Jesus is merciful. Mercy in the Roman world, in the Greco-Roman world, mercy was not a virtue to be practiced or prized. It was something that elderly people were allowed to practice and children were allowed to practice. But once you became a mature adult, you don't practice mercy. That's why they go down as Alexander the Great, Herod the Great, and so on. But Jesus, he already was great. <laughs> he goes down as Jesus the Merciful. Merciful, meaning he's withholding the judgment of God from us, extending compassion to us. Did you know that Jesus is gentle? Of all the ways to describe Jesus, and the way he even describes his own self, I'm gentle and meek and low in heart. That, that the God of the Christian faith is not one that you're supposed to be dreading, cowering, but rather, God is merciful, that our Jesus is merciful to you. When you blow it today, when you blow it later this week or next year, 20 years from now, you need to remember that Jesus will be merciful to you in that moment. And any other voice, a voice of condemnation, is not our Jesus talking to you. Jesus does not condemn his people. Jesus lifts condemnation off of his people. For all of us who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Jesus is merciful. Jesus is ready to extend mercy to your neighbor. And Jesus is faithful, a faithful high priest. In a day and age of com 
complacency and flakiness and non-committal everything. Jesus is faithful. Look, Jesus is not running around on you. Jesus is not cheating on you. Jesus is faithful, faithful, faithful. Our God is faithful. He has seen us through. Think back, even what Dan just led us in singing a minute ago. Hast thou not seen all thy desires have been granted in what he's ordaineth? Jesus has been faithful to you. He has seen you through. As our high priest in the service of God, Jesus is the mediator. And not only is Jesus the mediator, Jesus is the sacrifice. And not only is Jesus the sacrifice, but Jesus is the light of the temple. And not only is Jesus the light of the temple, Jesus is the temple. And not only does Jesus proclaim resurrection and the life, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Jesus is a faithful high priest in the service of God, meaning that when he stood between God and man, Jesus was able to bring your hands together. That's what Jesus did for us. He's a faithful high priest in the service of God. And what did he do? He made propitiation for the sins of the people. Boy, there's a lot to be said on this, but I'll keep it brief. This is the word used. This is Yom Kippur, meaning covering, meaning atonement. That when we do shameful actions, and we do, we want to feel covered. We need covering. We feel exposed. We feel naked and ashamed and so on. That's what we're feeling when we sin. We feel this profound sense of shame. And then we look at an almighty, all-holy, all-perfect God and go, oh my gosh, not only is my conscience after me and my critics are after me, there's no way God is for me. And yet, the overwhelming scandal of the good news of the gospel is that God is your covering, that he does not cover you from a distance. He covers you in his own blood. He covers you through Christ's sacrifice, that Jesus is our propitiation. That Jesus didn't send another angel or a lamb to die for you, but Jesus, as the perfect lamb of God, gave his life for us. That's our Savior. Propitiation. That God did not, listen, I know it's hot, and we're dealing with it, and we're thinking, man, if this is how hot it is, I don't want to go to hell. But I'm telling you that when Jesus died for you, this word propitiation means that God did not compromise his holiness in befriending us as sinners. Does that make sense? That God didn't lower his standards so that you're like, okay, now I can let Alex into the family because he's really messed up. No, no, no. God never lowered his standard. He simply met his own standard so that I could come into the family, so that you could come into the family. Your God is perfect. Your God is sovereign. Your God is holy, and your God is love. That's what propitiation is doing, saying, I got you covered. I saw it. I know. I know the thought that went through your head, the action that you did. I saw the whole thing, and I've got you covered. You are safe in the everlasting arms of God. That's propitiation. For the sins of the people, four, last verse, because he himself 
has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Feeling tempted lately? <laughs> yes. I woke up today, so yes. It is the human condition to be tempted to sin. Now listen, to be tempted to sin is not sin. You got to know the difference between the two. We can sometimes feel so guilty over something we didn't do. <laughs> to be tempted to sin is not a sin. Giving in to temptation, that's where sin happens. And Jesus, the argument, this is so profound. This is why it's so, it's foolishness to the Greeks. That Jesus can go, oh, I know what that feels like. I know that, I know that craving. I know that urge. I know that impulse. I know what it feels like to be human, to want to indulge something that God says don't. I know what it feels like to want to neglect my neighbor. I know what it feels like. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. Holy human. He was truly human. He, because he knows what it's like, is able to help those of us in times of temptation. So, Christian, I want to remind you that in the moment of temptation, you're not alone. Even if you're all by yourself, your Savior, who has promised to be faithful to you, and to never leave you or forsake you is the one who is present in that moment to go, Jesus, I'm about to cross the line into something that I don't want to do. Can you help? And Jesus is sitting with you going, absolutely, absolutely. Keep your eyes on me. Keep looking to me. Keep trusting me. Keep leaning on me. I'm going to get you through this hour. It's hard. It's hard. But to be tempted is not a sin. Your sinless Savior leads us out of temptation. So as you think through today, maybe this week, challenge yourself, am I living in fear of death? Do I need to live in fear of death? No. As you're battling temptation, maybe it's time to challenge yourself and go, I've been giving in to a lot of stuff just because I don't ask for my Savior's help. Maybe I'm going to challenge myself to start asking my Savior for help in times of temptation. Thank you so much for listening. I love you. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for being our propitiation. Thank you for covering us. Thank you for delivering us out of the fear of death, lifelong slavery. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for your truth. Jesus, we ask that we would walk with you by your Spirit. Help us, Father. Help us. We pray all these things in your good name. Amen.